welcome. Thank you for listening. We're currently working our way through the book of Joshua, celebrating the God who keeps every promise he has ever made. If you're in the Milwaukee area and you're looking for a church home, we'd love to meet you. You can connect with us more through our website, harvestcommunity.org. Joshua 5, verse 13. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in homage and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that. Chapter 6. Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites, no one leaving or entering. The Lord said to Joshua, Look, I've handed Jericho, its king, and its best soldiers over to you. March around the city with all the men of war circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the ram's horns. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear its sound, have all the troops give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the troops will advance each man straight ahead. So Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and have seven priests carry seven ram's horns in front of the Ark of the Lord. He said to the troops, move forward, march around the city and have the armed men go ahead of the Ark of the Lord. After Joshua had spoken to the troops, seven priests carrying seven ram's horns before the Lord moved forward and blew the ram's horns. The Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. While the ram's horns were blowing, the armed men went in front of the priests who blew the ram's horns and the rear guard went before the Ark. But Joshua commanded the troops, do not shout or let your voice be heard. Don't let one word come out of your mouth until the time I say, shout, then you are to shout. So the ark of the Lord was carried around the city, circling it once. They returned to the camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning. The priests took the ark of the Lord and the seven priests carrying seven ram's horns marched in front of the ark of the Lord. While the ram's horns were blowing, the armed men went in front of them, and the rear guard went behind the ark of the Lord. On the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. Early, on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. That was the only day they marched around the city seven times. After the seventh time, the priest blew the ram's horns, and Joshua said to the troops, "'Shout, for the Lord has given you the city.'" But the city and everything in it are set apart to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and everyone with her in the house will live, because she hid the messengers we sent. But keep for yourselves from but keep yourselves from the things set apart, or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. For all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. So the troops shouted and the ram's horns sounded. When they heard the blast of the ram's horns, the troops gave a great shout and the wall collapsed. The troops advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. They completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword. 
every man and woman, both young and old, and every ox, sheep, and donkey. Joshua said to the two men who had scouted the land, go to the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of there and all who are with her, just as you swore to her. So the young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold, the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her, because she hid the messengers Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho, and she lives in Israel today. At that time, Joshua imposed this curse. The man who undertakes the rebuilding of this city, Jericho, is cursed before the Lord. He will lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn. He will finish its gates at the cost of his youngest. And the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. God, as David comes, I ask that you would be with him, that your word would come in power, that his experience preaching would be one of worship to you, that our role in sitting under the preaching and interacting with it would be one of worship as well. We thank you in advance for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Harvest. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy and an honor to be here. As Caleb said, I've uh, known and loved he and Sheena and their family for 25 years now. We did have it all figured out then. We thought we, we at least knew parenting perfectly, right, before, <clears throat> before we I have a 17-year-old, a 13-year-old, and an 11-year-old. So I, 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 know, I know now that I knew nothing then. It's so good to be here. I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited to be in this passage. If you would be in your Bibles with me in Joshua chapter 6, we have an awesome story here, the story of the the battle of Jericho, the walls of Jericho. It's this, if you were raised in the church, if you're familiar with you know Sunday school, this is something that uh, I think I got taught every quarter for <laughs> from kindergarten to like my senior year of high school. It was just such a core story in our repertoire of Bible stories. It's an awesome story. But I wonder if maybe it got too familiar for me. Maybe it's a little bit over familiar for you as well. As I was preparing for this and studying this, I began to wonder, did I, did I ever actually read this passage in the Bible or did I just rely on memories from the old Hanna-Barbera cartoon? Do you guys remember the, the whole Hanna-Barbera series of like uh, Bible story? You can find them all on YouTube if you uh, are too young for that or didn't get to enjoy that. And they have one on the Battle of Jericho. And I thought, well, I could, because I was surprised. I was surprised to note uh, some of the things that, that really weren't in here that I had been expecting. Uh, what is not here in Joshua chapter 6, as we just heard Caleb read, uh, there's no great um, battle uh, battle description. There's no great drama about the walls. When you go back into the Hanna-Barbera cartoon, which I did as research for this, um, <laughs> When you go back in there, you know, they got the, the king of Jericho and the, and the general of the armies of Jericho, and they're, they're talking, you know, they're worried, you know, they show the, you know, all the little drama kind of on the edges of Israel, which isn't in here, you know, the, the earthquake that begins to rumble that, you know, grows and takes down the walls and stuff, and none of which is in here. What, what is actually in here? Let, let me like read to you the extent of the drama and excitement about the falling of the walls in the battle. Look with me at Joshua chapter 6, verse 5. 
We're just going to go down to the second half of this verse uh, where it says, And the wall of the city fell down flat, and the people shall go up, will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. That same, those same phrases are repeated in verse 20. So the people shouted, fast forward a little bit there in verse 20. And so the people went up, uh, I'm sorry, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And there's just a few other verses describing what's happening in this route of the people of Jericho, of the, of the armies of Jericho, but there's really no no drama, no buildup, no extensive description compared to, like, for example, uh, 1 Samuel 17 and David versus Goliath, where you've got this, like, this, this huge, long story, you know, David kind of marching up to the, the battle, hearing Goliath defy the armies of Israel, uh, you know, getting in trouble with his older brothers. He tries on King Saul's armor. He goes down to the brook and gets the stones. He's got this great sort of, like, Independence Day speech where he's facing off with Goliath, like, you, you, you come with all of your armor and your strength, but I defy you in the name of the Lord our God. And, you know, it's, it's just this, you know, chills, and it's this amazing drama. It's not here. There's none of that, none of that here. And I realize that what I've been getting excited about for pretty much my entire Bible reading life is not actually where the drama is in this text. The other thing that surprised me was not just what is not here, but what this doesn't mean. You know, what's interesting, this, this has become kind of an archetype for the way God works. So, you know, what's the Jerichos in your life? God's going to knock those walls down. Well, that's actually not the way this is, not, not what God does, and not the way this is used in Scripture, right? This is the, the first battle that they have as they go into the land of promise, the, the, the land of Canaan. Every other village, every other place they go to after this, the walls aren't just like falling over, this is a unique thing. And what's really interesting is as big of a deal as this was for me in my Sunday school education, it's not in Scripture. The only other reference to the walls of Jericho and the battle of Jericho is all the way in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament over a thousand years later. The lesson of Joshua 6 is not that God's going to knock your Jerichos down. It's actually going to be something, I think, more profound and a little more demanding. And so let's look at what is actually here. Now, I'm going to kind of emphasize, not, I'm not going to go through everything in this text. I'm going to emphasize kind of the unique contribution of this chapter. There's some things in here that are, you know, wrap-ups from the Rahab story, some things in here that are sort of previews of what's going to be the story of Achan and I in chapter 7. But I want to focus on what's here, what's the unique thing that's here in this text and so let's begin in verse 2 of chapter 6. The Lord said to Joshua, Look, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city will fall down flat. If I was describing a scene to you, and I, and I said, all right, tell me what's going on here. All right, so imagine the scene. Here's a bunch of priests, and they, they've got trumpets, and they're playing music, 
and they're surrounding or, or in front of or behind their, and the Ark of the Covenant's there. What would you think I'm describing? What does that sound like? It sounds like a, it sounds like a worship service. This battle, quote unquote, is actually just a worship service. The military is only there as an escort for the real weapon, which is between the, the military, the, the men of arms are marching in front and behind the priests and the ark. That's the real weapon in this situation. This, this is a worship service here. And the other thing I noticed, the other thing I want to observe here, so, so we just read that description of the seven priests, the seven ram's horn, the trumpets, the ark is present, right? Now look at, this is what the commander of the Lord's armies commands Joshua to do. Now look at what Joshua does. He turns in verse 6 and says, uh, Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go march around the city and let the armed, man, armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. So what the commander of the Lord's armies commanded Joshua, Joshua now commands the priests and the others. Let's pick up again in verse 8. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. So what the commander of the armies of the Lord commanded Joshua, he then commands the priests and the leaders, and then it says that they did it. But they, it doesn't just say that he did it, he commanded them, and that they did it. It says, it spells it all out, right? And again in verse 13 and 14, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned into the camp, and so they did for six days. What does this sound like to us? What, what's happening here? Four times what God commanded is described and then described as being done. They're being very careful with the commands, and they're being careful to emphasize, the text is being careful to emphasize that the commands were done as they were commanded. So what we see here is an emphasis, not just on worship, but on careful obedience. It's an emphasis on obedience. This is such an interesting thing that God gives to his people at this moment in their story. You know, this generation, these priests, these armed men, Joshua, and all the people, they were the, the generation whose parents, think about this with me, their parents, or grandparents perhaps, were the ones who had been led out of Egypt by God, right? They had seen God do all that amazing stuff against the gods of Egypt, bringing the greatest superpower on the planet to its knees. They saw God do that, and then they come to the borders of the land of promise, where this generation is right now, and they look at the inhabitants of the land, they look at the people of Jericho, and they say, mm -mm, we are not following that God into there, those enemies are too terrible. For that God, they would not follow him into there to face these people that God has now brought this generation up against. And so what has God given this next generation? What has he given them to do to equip them to confront the enemies who are now before them? 
the enemies that their parents were so terrified of that they wouldn't follow the God who they had seen in Egypt to confront them. What does he give them? What does he command them to do now that it's their turn to face these scary opponents? He gives them worship and obedience. He commands them to worship and obey. What is most important for victories in our life? What is most important for facing the problems that we have to face? For them then, their victory, what was most important was not their strategy, right? There was not some war room with a big map of Jericho and guys pushing, you know, little like tanks around, right, playing Stratego with this stuff. It wasn't their strategy, it wasn't their weapons, right? Israel did, God didn't give Israel like awesome tech. Like, you know, it wasn't like the Stone Age or whatever, Bronze Age, and he gave them titanium. And it wasn't their training. They weren't like the best equipped army in the world. Because what was most important for their victory was worship and obedience. Worship and obedience. In fact, what we see here in Joshua 6 is really just a growing emphasis that we've seen all through Joshua's chapter 1 to 5. Do you remember all the way back in Joshua chapter 1, there's that, that awesome kind of set of commands that God gives Joshua. Be strong and very courageous, right? It, all of us have like some poster that says that in our, in our guy's room in our house, right? You know, be strong and very courageous. And he gets Joshua pumped up. He says, be strong and very courageous, right? Like it seems like a, a military scene. Joshua's getting ready to lead the people into the promised land. Be, be strong and very courageous. He says, and be careful, be strong and very courageous and meditate on my word. And be careful to do what you read there. God's saying, be strong and courageous to make sure that you're worshiping me and obeying me. That's what it takes strength and courage to do. My spirit amens that. I like, I like training. I like technology. I like tools. I like planning. I like conversations. But worship and obedience is really hard. We go uh, to Joshua chapter 3. They cross the Jordan River just like they were led out of Egypt through the, river, the waters of the Red Sea. Now they're being led into the land of promise through the waters of the Jordan River. And they get into chapter 4. And what does God tell them to do? He says, get 12 big stones and make a big pile of stones. You Remember what that was for? It was right Because uh, I want you to always remember me and what I've done for you. I want this pile of stones to be a, a reminder of worship so that you continue to obey. We get into chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 are just so ex extraordinarily interesting. I know Caleb, Pastor Caleb talked about this last week. But it, it begins with saying, like, basically, God had struck fear into all the kings and all the armies of the land of Canaan, right? Which would seem like that's the right time to seize tactical advantage and attack. But what God does instead is he says, I want all the men to... Uh, circumcised, to get circumcised. And, and it's like, why? Because what's most important there is not seizing the tactical advantage, but remembering who God is and who, who you are to him, remembering your covenant relationship. In chapter 10 of verse, uh, or verse 10 of chapter 5, again, right on the edge of battle, right on the edge of the conquest, God says, slow down, we're going to have a Passover. We're going to have a big all-church Worship time. And of course, as Caleb began the reading with at the end of chapter 5, Joshua meets this fellow who is the commander of the armies of the Lord. And it says in verse 14 of chapter 5 that Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And he said, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua worships and he says, what is the obedience 
that you require. So what we see here in chapter 6 is, is a part of how God's been preparing them this whole time. I love, as probably many of you do, I love sports movies. I love uh, boxing movies, fighting movies, uh, war movies. And my favorite part in those movies probably is the training montage. I love the training montage. It's got the best song out of the whole movie, right? Bum, 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 bum. You know, and you see the guy, you know, he's, he's swinging, he's lifting weights, he's running real fast, he's drinking raw eggs, you know, and you get, you get all pumped up in that training montage, right? Well, as we see in Joshua 1 to 5, what's the training montage for the people of God, newly freed from Egypt, heading into the land of promise. What's the training montage? It's what we would call spiritual formation. That's their training montage. Cue the awesome, cue the awesome uh, song, and you see them on their knees praying and huddled in a group together around God's word and remembering who God is and what he's done for them and who they are to him. That's how God gets them ready. Uh, what does this mean? What is the... Uh, the real meaning of Joshua 6, if it's not uh, God's going to take care of all your Jerichos. This is here at the beginning of the stories of conquest, at the beginning of the conquest, because there's a few things that Israel needs to remember and understand and remember as they move forward. And it's that God wins through worship and obedience. I know the title of the sermon, I said, like, how God's people win. Well, God's people win when God wins. God wins through worship and obedience. And the first part of that is, is that God wins, right? God's ways work. Say that to yourself, just God's ways work. That is the friction point of all faith, isn't it? Do I believe that God's ways work? Well, this is so clear. God's ways, however strange they might seem, God's ways work. His commander wins, and he can be reliably followed to victory. Friends, whatever it is that we're facing, whatever, you know, God is going to send the people of Israel into all sorts of different confrontations from here. But God's commander, God's ways can be reliably followed to victory. And so what is most important for God's people is to worship and obey. It's so interesting when, you know, in the context of the story of the Old Testament that we've seen so far, it's so interesting that Joshua 1 to 6 is not Jericho focused. There's almost, almost no reference to Jericho in Joshua 1 to 5. What Joshua 1 to 5 is, is God focused. That's what's most important for Israel at this time, is to focus on God. I mean, when we, when we read Joshua 6, is Jericho a problem? Does, does, is, does it seem like Jericho's a problem for God? Absolutely not. The biggest problem, which we have seen and we will see in the story of the Old Testament, the biggest problem is Israel's willingness to rely on God. Are they willing to rely on God? But the truth they need to learn here to be useful in that question for them later is that God wins and he calls us to worship and obedience. The question of Israel's willingness to trust in, to follow God is a big question for the rest of the Old Testament. There's this interesting moment in the passage. I can't remember where it is exactly. Oh, verse 25 says that Rahab has lived in Israel to this day. Right, so somebody's writing this account. 
Now, the first readers, the first readers of this account, the first readers of the Battle of Jericho, those who heard this the first time, they were still in the land of promise, and they were facing continual opposition from the nations that were living there as they expanded into the promised land. And so they were facing continual opposition. They were facing continual temptation to reject God as their king, and instead, in the words I'm quoting here from the elders of Israel in 1 Samuel 8, to choose a king like all the nations. Would they be willing to follow God? And, and they weren't. That was the big, the big problem, but a huge problem for Israel was their lack of a real leader who would truly and consistently follow the Lord. They just didn't have that. From Genesis 3 on, this is what the Old Testament is looking for, this leader who would truly and consistently follow the Lord. Even Joshua, he does, there's no great moral failings recorded in Joshua's case, but he made plenty of mistakes, and he died. And we can't really hold that against him, but, but the Old Testament is clear. We need a better leader. Even if we have a good leader, they don't last. We need a better leader. We need a leader like this guy in Joshua 5. Look with me again at Joshua 5, 13 to 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I've come. If you, f five minutes before this, if you had asked anybody in Israel, including Joshua, who's the commander of the armies of the Lord, he'd have said, well, you know, me, I guess. They would have said, well, Joshua. Now, he says, now I've come. Now the commander of the Lord has come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the kind of leader we need, the real commander of the armies of the Lord. This is the commander who tore down the walls of Jericho. And what's extraordinary, this is the one through whom God wins and through whom God is worshipped? Who is this? This is the one through whom God wins, through whom God is worshipped. We need him. Could he please be the one to lead us and never leave? Who is this mystery character? Well, there's so much, there's so many little red threads to follow from this point to other places in Scripture, which I would encourage you to track out. But what we can say here, limited as we are to this passage, he is at least, we know this, he is the shape of the one that we hope will come. We see here the outline of something, and we see that he does this Jericho stuff, and, and we, but we know that what our hope is in someone who's going to come, who's going to really do some great and glorious Jericho stuff, not just walls from one village in one place. And that hope, of course why we're all here gathered in his name, that hope is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope that this commander of the Lord inspires. This guy knocks down the walls of Jericho in order to sharpen our understanding and our picture of what we need God to provide in the one that he has promised to provide, who we know as Jesus. 
Jesus will come and he will knock down still greater walls. And I think that's what happened that first Easter morning when the most, the most immovable, the most impenetrable barrier, death itself, the wall that was standing between us and all the promises of God, all the freedom and love and joy and life that God has promised, that wall fell down flat. And the resurrection announced God won through Jesus. Jesus now will be our commander forever. Jesus will be our commander forever. And so it is very interesting now to think about Jesus as our commander, to think about how did he prepare for, how did he live out his mission? If we were going to see a training montage of Jesus, what kind of stuff did he do? When we go to the New Testament, we open up Matthew. The first thing Jesus does as he gets ready, as he begins to live out his mission, what he was sent for, the first thing he does is he goes and get baptized. What was that about? Baptism was Jesus saying, I want everybody to know that I belong to this people who belong to this God. It was all about announcing his identity. The next thing that he does immediately, he goes out into the wilderness to pray for 40 days and meditate on the book of Deuteronomy. What is he doing? The very first thing that Jesus does to prepare is he worships and he obeys. Think about Jesus' most fearful moment as he gets ready for the, the greatest test, the greatest challenge of his ministry. What does he do on the night that he was betrayed? He goes and he has a Passover. There's that again. He has a Passover worship supper where they, they, they lay out the supper and they tell each other the stories of what God has done and who God is for them. They, they recite scripture together. They sing hymns together. They pray together. And then he leaves that and he goes to a small group prayer meeting. As Jesus says in John 5, 19, he says, he says, truly, truly, he says, listen, listen, the son does nothing of his own accord. He only does what he sees the father doing. And what he sees the father doing, the son does likewise. Jesus says, everything I do in my life and ministry, I'm just watching God. I'm worshiping the father and I'm doing it. Jesus, our commander, lived out his mission by worship and obedience. Because why? Because God works through worship and obedience. God won through Jesus, and through Jesus' worship and obedience, and Jesus is our commander forever, and he has given us his spirit. That same spirit in Jesus is now given to us for the mission that we have been called to. The Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 2. He says, we have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light to proclaim his excellencies. You see that robust, the, the word darkness, we, we live in his light. We see his excellencies. That's worship. And now we're here to proclaim it. That's obedience. That's our mission. Jesus' victory expands through worship and obedience. As we've just been doing for the last half hour, his, we see that Jesus is worth is communicated in our worship. His superiority is expressed in our obedience. Obedience. You like that word? <laughs> Imagine doing something just because a person said so. Not because you agree with it, right? Like, I'm willing to uh, obey if I agree. That's not obedience. <laughs> That's you being so smart and making a good decision, right? Imagine doing something just because a person said so, not because it makes sense, but just 
because of who they are. Right? That's what's happening in Joshua 6. The commander of the armies of the Lord is telling Joshua and Israel to do some crazy stuff. And if Joshua's like, hang on, hang on, explain this to me again. You know, come into the war room with our little map and our little action figures and, and push this stuff around and show me what, what, what's going on here now. That's not what happens at all. He just goes and he does it, crazy though it looks, because why? Because of who told him. Worship and obedience, that's our witness. So let me close by just encouraging you, exhorting you, as I think the text is doing to all of us, to worship and obey. Or maybe a better way to think about that is to elevate worship and obedience in your strategy, to invest in it for your, for your life. The, the model that we see here in Joshua 6, the, the Jericho operation, is to be a model for how God's people approach their problems. Approach your problems by paying attention to God and seeking to do his will. By going into our problems saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Worship and obedience. And the key example of this is Joshua himself. You may have noticed that the, the chapter ends with saying that Joshua's fame spread throughout all the land, which is a way for Scripture to indicate he's doing it right at this point. He's doing it right. And what was he doing right? All Joshua did in this chapter was he worshipped, right? He fell down before the commander of the Lord's armies, and he said, you lead, and please tell me what obedience you require. That's what Joshua did right. And there's, there's an important sequence, I think, here that we've observed, but I want to just flesh it out for a moment, that worship precedes obedience. Worship builds obedience. Worship is, I've been thinking about this all week, worship is, is looking again. You know, we, we come to church and we talk about Jesus, we talk about God, but then there's that moment, right, where you say, that, wait, what did we just say? What did we just sing? What did the preacher just say? What was that that we just read? There's that, that what? That look again. And you get to see it more clearly. You get to appreciate the glory that's there. And that's so important for obedience because when we really see Jesus, when, when we really see and understand Jesus, you know what every single one of us has done and will do? We say, oh, oh, oh yeah, okay. Him? He, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll trust him. I'll do what he says. Once we see him, obedience is not a problem. Once we really worship, real worship just becomes obedience. So just very practically taking some, some pictures from Joshua 1 to 6, let me encourage you to, like the Lord tells Joshua way back when, meditate on Scripture. Make a pile of something in your life and remember who God is and what he's done for you. If it helps, blow some trumpets continuously in your life. You know, crank the worship music up, or if you need to, uh, like they do in Joshua 6, take a walk in silence. Every day, every week, invest in what helps you better appreciate God's glories because that is going to help you be more agreeable to following his ways as well. The story of Jericho, Joshua 6, calls us as God's people to commit to worship and obedience, to commit to, to faith as being our way of being in this world. Faith is our way of addressing the moment in which we find ourselves. I know there's a lot of competing theories on how Christians should be in this moment in our culture, in our place. Joshua 6 and the story here 
calls us to commit to faith and worship and obedience as being our way, no matter how foolish or useless it might look or feel at times. God works, and God's ways win. And I won't say that what we do helps, but what he's told us to do is how he's decided to work. I'm going to close this morning looking at Ephesians chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, look there with me, please. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. Paul, we pick up mid-prayer for the Apostle Paul. He says, I, I ask that you have strength to comprehend. Comprehend what? Comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul prays that they will have a worshipful experience of Jesus. And then immediately he says, and I know that God is going to do more than you can ask or think. And we see that played out in Joshua 5 and 6. Joshua meets a foreshadowing of Jesus in chapter 5. He worships and he obeys. And then he goes out and he sees God do far more than he could ask or think. And so also when we really see Jesus, which is why Paul prays this, when we really see Jesus, the height and length and depth and breadth of the love of God in Christ, then our big problems are going to seem a lot smaller. And the difficult obedience in front of us is going to seem a lot easier. And what Paul says is that it is in just such places and at just such moments that God loves to work. He loves to work and to be glorified in Christ Jesus and in us. I'd like to invite the music team back up and then and I'll pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're gathered here in the name of Jesus and for his glory and for yours in him. Lord, we love Jesus, but we do want to see him more clearly. We know that that is what we need. That is why we're here. So open our eyes and help us to see. And Lord, as we look to Jesus and we look to you in him, we know that you can do far more abundantly than we ask or think. We saw that happen all the way back in Joshua chapter 6. We've seen that happen in Jesus, in his life and ministry and resurrection. And some of us have gotten to see some of that in our lives too. And so it is with that prayer and that hope and that heart that we turn to you now. As we worship, Lord, help us to stir up the obedience that you've directed us to in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory.